The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thanks. He's been really working overtime uh, covering these markets and this economy in turmoil for us. Uh, Speaking of which, this afternoon, stocks are back in rally mode right now, led this time by a massive jump in oil. At the highs, we are at more than 500 points. We're currently up 350 for some pretty solid 1.5 to almost 2% gains across the board right now. I mentioned crude. That is going to be the huge story of the day, and it is the driver of the action. Right now, it is up 25%. The energy sector, as you can see, there is up nearly 10%. All of this after the president told CNBC the Saudis and Russia will ease pressure on oil. We're going to have a lot, lot more on this in just a moment. We should note that despite this rally, crude is still down 46% in just the past month. And the rally in stocks today comes despite the massive jump in weekly jobless claims to 6.6 million filed last week. That's a new record. We've now had nearly 10 million claims in the past two weeks. Only about 11 million were filed in all of last year. So a pretty shocking increase. For more on today's market, it moves. Let's get straight to Bob Bassani for what he is watching. Bob. And the key here is it's nice to have something besides coronavirus move the markets. The, the jobless claims numbers, high as they were, didn't really uh, dramatically move the market down. Initially it did, but we came back. It was when the president commented uh, on the expected oil uh, cuts uh, in the production uh, in Saudi Arabia uh, and in Russia, whether that's going to happen or not, but that's what moved the markets. And if you took a look at uh, the major sectors here, energy far and away is the leader. Uh, utilities and banks have bounced back after a brutal 6% decline yesterday. That was nice to see. Uh, we see REITs are underperforming and retail stocks are also underperforming. I think this is probably because of some of the guidance and commentary that we gave. Let's look at some companies that are either suspending or saying they're not sure what the guidance is. Kimco Realty, one of those companies out there, big shopping mall owner. Uh, they have an ownership position in Alberts. They're suspending uh, Albertsons. They're suspending uh, guidance. So that's weak. Uh, Walgreens said they're not in a position to accurately forecast the future impact of coronavirus. That's sort of uh, indicating guidance isn't very good. Shopify, Brinker, which does Maggiano's, and uh, Stanley Works, Black & Decker, are also suspending guidance there. Most of them down except Stanley Works. Just want to finally note the energy ETFs, really huge volume today. Volumes are generally down across the board on the ETFs compared to what we've seen recently. But there's the U.S. Uh, oil fund USO, which is an oil futures and the energy and uh, oil and gas exploration are equities. Huge volume in those today. You know, it never fails. They always think there's some kind of bottom in oil, and they always get killed. The story's now four or five years old. But there are people who are trying to figure out whether $20 might be a bottom for oil. Back to you. Okay, Bob, thanks. Uh, let's zero in on oil right. for another moment. It's having its best day on record. And if we settle up more than 23.8%, that'll be true. We're up 24.5% right now. All of this after the president tweeted and told our Joe Kernan that he expects and hopes that Russia and Saudi Arabia will be cutting back approximately 10 to 15 million barrels of oil. Now, we have several energy executives headed to the White House tomorrow, where sources tell CNBC they won't be lobbying for a direct bailout, but instead lobbying for relief from drilling on federal lands, among other things. For more on where the price of oil could go from here, I am joined by Dan Jurgen. He's vice chair of IHS Market and author of the upcoming book, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Brian Sullivan is with us as well. Brian, let me just start with you, because there's been a lot of headlines this morning. But what do we actually know? Well, okay, Kelly. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Dan. Listen, um, I, I just been going back and forth minutes ago, literally, with somebody inside of Aramco to talk about this a little bit. And it's very clear that, um, and not taking anything away from the president's tweet, because he was on the call and he knows what they said, but, and I'm sure Dan would agree with this, 10 to 15 million barrel a day cut from Saudi and Russia together alone is simply not possible. Uh, just, it's just not mathematically possible. The price of oil didn't go up 50%, so they would still come out worse. Um, and they said, and this is what I, I got from somebody inside of Aramco a few minutes ago, any 10 million cut or more must include U.S. producers. So I, I don't know if they were saying that, like, mathematically it must or they're going to insist that it must. But here's the reality. You're not going to take half of Saudi and Russia production offline. They just couldn't. No country could actually yeah. even physically do that. It would have to include 
Correct. The U.S. producers, and my yeah. guess is tomorrow at the White House, there's going to be a, you know, you guys need to roll back your production Brian, kind of conversation. Right. Hmm. Brian, let me jump in there. Uh, I have a piece, uh, Kelly, I don't know if you have it yet, that just went up on foreignaffairs.com on this subject as to what's actually happening. I think the president is famous for being a deal maker. I think here he's doing uh, divorce mediation, getting these two countries <laughs> together. But as Brian says, that if you even if you roll back what they had, uh, the increases, it's not clear the Russians have increased, the Saudis are increasing, and some others are, it would be maybe 4 million barrels a day. What we're looking at in the month of April is a 20 million barrel a day decline in demand. And as Brian said, uh, you know, you're not going to get the cuts out of just those countries. And there's no real way the federal government has to, it's not like, you know, Saudi Arabia can't just tell oil companies to cut back. So I think there's that, that's where the puzzle is. We think, you know, at IHS market, our view has been that we were going to see a 10 million barrel a day decline because producers are going to have to shut in because they can't either get their oil to market, they can't get into storage, or that the price in the marketplace is less than their operating costs. But, of course, today, with the price up, uh, it looks a little brighter for the producers. But there's still the question that sometime in late April or early May, we'll probably run out of storage unless there are right. not major cuts. Plus, Dan, the price is only up today on reports that you say aren't possible. Well, I think, as, as Brian said, certainly those two countries are not going <laughs> to... They can't do it. But, you know, Russia is having trouble placing its barrels in the market, and so production sort of goes down anyway. So, um, but I think that the sign that, you know, this is a turnaround in production, in, in viewpoint of the two countries. And, uh, and obviously what's really new is the engagement of President Trump in this. Right. And, Brian, I thought the interesting thing, too, is this reporting that's on the wire from Reuters in the last several minutes where they say the U.S. government is not necessarily looking uh, to impose any kind of quota. I don't even know if they could do it. You said yesterday, you know, it's against the law in the U.S. for these companies to get together and agree to cut production. I don't know if it'd be any different coming from above. But, Brian, if they cut production because they have to, I mean, even if we're not officially announcing, hey, we're going to have this cutback, are we effectively going to have that situation anyway? So, you know, it might not be official, so to speak, but is it a wink, wink, nod, nod? Hey, if everybody's kind of not able to keep producing what they're currently producing, at some point that kind of supply is going to come off the market. I, I mean, I guess. But the one thing everybody's got to remember about this is that shutting in a well is expensive. I mean, smaller producers, it would be cheaper for them to continue to pump oil losing money every barrel because the cost of actually capping or stopping the flow of a well can be fifty to $100,000. It's not like you just turn the water off on a sink. Now, there are some ways to do that, but the point is it's also expensive to do the other thing. And you're right. Can the government say you're going to cut your production by this much? I don't think so. It seems like that's a cartel, which, by the way, there's an anti-cartel bill called NOPEC going in Congress right now, sort of ironically enough. I know that two big Texas uh, producers, Parsley and Pioneer, um, and we had CEO of Pioneer on last week, they're asking Texas to basically impose quotas on production. But to Dan's point, it's not about supply. It's about demand. If we drop right. off 20 million barrels a day and the refineries stop pumping, you know, produce buying oil to produce gasoline because nobody needs it or needs jet fuel, where is that oil going to go? Right. And the journal yesterday had a great editorial where they explained that if you impose quotas, you benefit the weaker players, hurt the stronger ones. Uh, the, the Texas had gone down this road before. They said they shouldn't go down it again. Well, they had. In fact, they, uh, you know, they did this starting in the 1930s when oil was going for 10 cents a barrel. And they, the last time they did it, however, was actually 50 years ago, half a century. So wow. you don't have anybody there who even remembers how to pro-ration, as it's called. But you know, I think other countries are kind of going to look at Texas, because remember, Texas produces 40% of the U.S.'s entire oil. But I think that, you know, there's, there's, you know, this is a very controversial thing to do that, uh, to, you know, there's people on, on both sides of it. And as Brian says, you know, they, the companies themselves can't get together and do this. But the states have, the states are the ones who actually have authority over production. There are other things the federal government can do to ease the pressure on the companies, uh, economically, but uh, and it, it but is interesting, Dan. If you don't mind, I just want to get you this last point from you before we, ha we have to move on. But uh, reportedly, the companies are not looking for some sort of direct bailout. In fact, they seem to want relaxed 
uh, permits for drilling on federal lands, for instance, which if the idea is to have less production well, right now, I, well, I don't I even... Well, I, I think what they'd like is royalty relief, and I think what they'd also like is some of the uh, restrictions on shipping to be of, of what what's called the Jones Act. Jones Act, yep. Jones Act. Move, move, move oil in ships up the U.S. coast, and that would improve the competitive position of U.S. oil vis-a-vis foreign oil. Uh, others want tariffs, but that would could backfire because the U.S. is actually an exporter of 8 million barrels a day of crude and products. So if they get relief, think, Dan. Yeah, and by, the, and by the way, I'm going to jump in on that, too. Because go ahead, Brian. You, yeah. you, everybody's like, let's tariff Saudi oil. We're still importing 6 million. Okay, maybe we do that to save America, but I do need to remind you that everything is connected. If Two things. If we tariff Saudi oil, and I'm not saying we should or shouldn't, the Saudis, who are like the number one buyer of U.S. military equipment, might go find another supplier for that. So now the defense industry will probably be out of their mind because the Saudis will say, well, if you tariff our oil, we're going to stop buying $100 billion worth of your yeah. fighter jets and missiles every year. So you got that. Dan knows more about that than I do. But I can tell you what and, they really like because I've talked to two companies. Kelly, you know what they want? They don't want to go to the White House in person tomorrow. <laughs> okay? Let's not forget, this is a meeting in person. And I can tell you, having talked to some of these companies and broke the story about which seven are going, some of them would rather do this on Zoom. They're not real. No, I'm not joking. You know, yeah, an in-person I meeting. I mean, yeah, they're they're, right concerned, now they're the concerned leaders, about the seating. They don't, want to, they don't want to be huddled in a small room. So I think yeah. that's probably the uh, That's the a case. real point we're making, by the way. Dan, if the news that but, comes out of this is some royalty relief uh, and some of the Jones Act relief things you mentioned, all that does is is – do what help these companies whether this uh, i mean how much r- real relief are we talking about if those measures which might uh, well, have needed to be done otherwise are removed for the time being well uh, right now you know when when you're really ill any relief is good relief and so it would be you know it would be i i think it would be welcome it's not decisive it doesn't solve the overall problem as brian said which is the collapse in uh in in demand uh so and i think the notion if you put tariffs if you're, if you're trying to do divorce mediation and also decide to punish them at the same time with tariffs, I don't think you get to a very productive outcome. All right. We thank you both uh, today, Dan Jurgen and Brian Sullivan, with the very latest reporting on what may indeed be happening with any oil production cuts. Again, that has oil spiking on this session today. It has the whole stock market higher, too, helping it to erase earlier losses after that huge jump in jobless claims that we saw this morning. Nearly 10 million claims have been filed in the past two weeks alone. That's nearly as many as were filed in all of last year and in all of 2018. Each of those years, only just more than 11 million total claims were filed. How much worse could things get here? Joining me, Mark Zandi is chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Ryan Dietrich is senior market strategist at LPL Financial. And Brian Weinstein is head of global fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Ryan, I'll start with you because uh, we cribbed your data for, on the jobless claims there. I mean, it is shocking, you know, the kind of uh, spike that we're seeing right now. Uh, how do you what's your best advice right now? Yeah, Kelly, our economy clearly was moving along nicely. And if you think about it in a car, we hit a tree. We've never seen an economy really stop like this. And like you said, 10 million claims is what we saw the last couple of years just about. So it's truly unprecedented. But really, I think it's naive to think what got us into a lot of this trouble, some of the action in the bond market and then in the oil markets. That's, that's where the volatility started before it got to the stock market. We think you need some type of bottom in the oil markets. And today's news is really a, really a quote-unquote good thing that happened because we can get some type of low, some type of calm in the oil markets. Maybe that can work its way to the bond markets and to the stock market. Now, you know, this has been a historically volatile year. We get it. This volatility is not going to go anywhere. But, you know, maybe one potential bullet point is when you have a bad first quarter, April is usually a pretty good month. And historically, that's kind of the playbook. So maybe a little bit of a bounce here, but by no means are we out of the woods, in our opinion. Mark, uh, how much darker do the woods get? Darker. Uh, I mean, one thing, one disconcerting aspect of today's UI claims numbers were that they were in places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Massachusetts, and those are states where the lockdowns started first. So I live in Chester County, Pennsylvania, right outside Philly. We were one of the first counties in the country to experience a lockdown. So that would suggest all the lockdowns that are now coming. And you saw Florida, Georgia yesterday announced lockdowns. All all those uh, claims are coming uh, down the road. So we've got a ways to go here. So it's going to get a lot darker. So, uh, Mark, some of the estimates that I'm seeing now, I mean, hopefully they can't get a whole lot worse because you have people talking about 30 to 50 percent declines in second quarter GDP and unemployment rate peaking at anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. You know, 
Are you of the mind that the worse it gets, the sharper the rebound could be? Or is it the worse it gets, the more the bigger the risk that something gets permanently broken? Uh, the latter. I mean, I think when the economy is under and financial systems are under such uh, significant pressure, uh, odds are pretty high that something else uh, goes off the rails. I mean, one thing we, 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 we know for almost for sure will happen, there will be more business failures and bankruptcy. And that'll make the downturn more severe, longer, but it also make the recovery that much more difficult because, you know, people won't have jobs to go back to. Those businesses will be out of, out of, uh, out of business. And, you know, if you look into the financial system, there are, are a lot of stress points. Now, the Fed's done a really good job of keeping it all together, but uh, the longer this goes on and the more pressure that's applied, you know, those fault lines uh, may, may it'll be very difficult for the Fed to succeed. And if that happens, then, of course, uh, the recovery will be uh, very difficult. So sure, yeah. I, under, under, under any scenario, it's hard to see the economy coming back quickly. Brian, let's talk about the Fed and a lot of the moves that they've made so far, which in many ways are aimed directly at helping uh, bond markets, fixed income markets, and other things continue to smoothly operate. Are they having success in that regard? They're starting to. Well, and then, it, I mean, go ahead, if, Brian. Yeah. If you think about the magnitude, even if, even if you can look at economists' estimates, to think about 10 million people losing their jobs in two weeks – uh, it's just mind-boggling. And then you take a big step back and you say, okay, how does cash flow get through the economy? Because that's what bonds are, right? And, and the answer is no one knows. So that uncertainty factor got so large that what the Fed did was necessary, uh, and it's starting to help. So you can see thawing in the Treasury market and in the mortgage market where there are government-guaranteed cash flows. I think for an active bond manager like MSIM, this is really important because you, can't, you can no longer say you like corporate bonds because you actually have to decide which corporate bonds is the money going to get to first, hmm. right? And it matters in small business, large business, mortgage payments, every industry now, you can't just look at the index and decide if you like it or not. So this gets really hard from here because so, we don't know how this will heal and we don't know how long it will take, but we know there are going to be problems. And Brian, I imagine that for you guys, that means a balance sheet focus, uh, something basically on, on, on company by company solvency. Can you speak at all to you know, who kind of rises, who falls, even in, in general terms? Yeah, sure. I mean, listen, people have been on this theme for a while. Over-levered companies may have fewer options, right? They need cash flows to come back. And if you look at the performance of the month of February, which was a fascinating month, you can see investors starting to understand that companies with strong balance sheets who have been more conservative are going to be okay. You can see that in structured products, which scare people, the top of the capital stack um, is going to be okay because it's made to survive defaults. So you, yeah, and, and obviously you can pick on certain sectors, right? You can go into, into you know, uh, lodging and gaming and things where the cash flow has just gone to zero, and, and then you have to postulate how long that will take to come back. So you can see the market starting to do the work, but remember how used to people are to trading the index. Absolutely. Right? And I think it's going to have to change a little bit, and that's going to take a long time. So you're going to take a while to navigate the winners and losers, um, but it gives us as long-term investors a real chance to take what, what, what Mark and Ryan are saying as you know, economists and strategists and, and say, okay, well, how does this actually play out? Yeah. How do we get money to people? How do those people take the money? What bills will they pay? And getting that even even a little bit right, I think, is going to separate out the winners from the losers. So, Ryan, and I apologize because we have Brian and Ryan today, but, Ryan, right. uh, the same is true on, on, obviously, the stock market side as well. For sector investing, do you think that just remains a risky gambit for a while? Well, Kelly, I think we're talking about two separate things, right? The economy is not the stock market and vice versa. What's going to happen here, we're going to start seeing days where the stock market is going up a lot with really bad news, much like a month ago when things are going down before the bad news happened. The way we're looking at it at LPL Research, we're sticking with a little bit overgrowth. We like healthcare, We like technology. Some of those areas that have held up well on this sell-off are going to eventually come back. And, you know, it, it takes about, you know, 20 months to make new highs when you have a sell-off like this. So we're not anticipating new highs anytime soon. But after 87, 34% right where we were now, took 20 months to get to new highs. There can be a lot of gains and a lot of opportunity for longer-term investors here um, when we can get over to the other side. And we do think the second half of the year with all that monetary fiscal policy, which everyone's been talking about, it is there and it's not something we want to bet against. All right. Even with sectors. Uh, gentlemen, thank you all. A good diversity of opinions. We appreciate it. Mark Zandi, Ryan Dietrich, and Brian Weinstein. Well, $350 billion of those small business loans will be made available starting tonight at midnight. But is the government truly ready to roll out the program? Kayla Tausche is looking at how Washington's trying to get this up and running. And Kate Rogers has been speaking with small business trade groups about what to expect. Uh, Kayla, let's start with you. 
Kelly, banks who are going to be making these loans have been warning Washington that the program is not ready for prime time. First, they don't have general guidance. They haven't been provided an application to become SBA lenders. And then there are some more specific questions about the structure of this program that I'm told uh, multiple industry executives raised with the Treasury Secretary directly in a series of calls arranged by trade groups over the last few days. Hear what the two specific asks were. Smaller banks wanted Treasury to increase the interest rate paid if these loans are not forgiven for a company. It's currently at half of a percentage point, but for community banks who have a higher cost of capital, they say they'll actually be losing money to make some of these loans, and they want that not to be the case. For big banks, they have asked for the Treasury to waive anti-money laundering provisions called know-your-customer rules that pr protect against money laundering and fraud. Uh, if those rules don't get waived, these banks say, uh, they won't be able to do business in a timely fashion with companies they've never studied before, and they know that speed is of the essence here. Now, that is, of course, the concern on the industry side. Treasury, for its part, uh, has said it expects these banks to participate, and it expects loans to begin being originated beginning tomorrow. But then, Kelly, there is just the overload of the system, a back end that has never seen demand like this. American Enterprise Institute estimates a trillion dollars of demand from small business exists for a program first come, first served, that will only provide $350 billion. And one industry source says bank executives are worried this could look like the botched rollout of healthcare.gov in 2013. Yeah, Kelly? I know, that's what we're all worried about. Uh, Kate, stay right there. We have some breaking news that's coming in on GE. Uh, Phil LeBeau joins us for that. Phil, what's going on? Kelly, just got off the phone with the folks at GE Aviation. They're going to be announcing a cut of up to 50% of the manufacturing staff. Remember, they're building the GE uh, Aviation, the aircraft engines uh, there in the Cincinnati area. Well, they're going to be cutting that staff down by 50%, a four-week uh, furlough that will begin on Monday. Obviously, this is because of what we're seeing with demand for aircraft and demand for uh, for engines right now. You've got Boeing essentially shut down in terms of manufacturing uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, and you've got problems with Airbus and its manufacturing over in Europe. So now you've got GE Aviation, which previously announced, Kelly, that it was cutting 10% of the manufacturing staff. Now they're saying it's going to be 50% of those workers who will be furloughed for up to four weeks. Kelly, back to you. All right, Phil, thanks very much. Kayla Tausche just told us the government is worried about avoiding a botched rollout of the small biz lending program. Kate Rogers is speaking with the small businesses themselves who have a lot of questions, Kate, about this. That's right, Kelly. We've been hearing a lot of concerns from small businesses, and we're learning a bit more about what's been going on behind the scenes. SBA and Treasury did hold a call with trade group representatives yesterday, and here's what two sources on that call told me, that there are still many questions about program readiness, and trade group representatives were really questioning officials, uh, if they had confidence that banks would actually lend with 0.5% interest rates to these small business owners. The sources said that the officials did not say if they were confident or not, but rather they simply justified those low rates. It also seemed that officials were still working out how to handle independent contractors. One source said this is likely why contractors were punted to filing dates for next week, because it's unclear on how to handle them. An official familiar with the PPP program did tell CNBC that the official guidance for banks is not yet finalized, but said they are still aiming to launch this program tomorrow. Kelly, both sources from the trade group side that were on the call said that their biggest concerns were really getting enough clarity here for the banks to pull this off tomorrow. One source told me he has no confidence that this will actually be pulled off tomorrow because Treasury and SBA simply are not coordinated and are not on the same page, didn't have answers to simple questions yesterday. We did reach out to the SBA for comment on this, and we'll bring you anything we get it in real time. Back yeah, well, over to you. it doesn't sound promising if they didn't have answers to simple questions. You know, the question I keep getting, Kate, from people is, how do I get in touch with my bank? So they say, I call, but it just rings and rings. There's nobody there to answer. You know, a lucky few might have an email address, but a lot don't. Or they might have had a contact in a year or two in the past, and they're not sure if that's relevant now. I mean, at a time when many banks are only accepting people in their branches, only a few of them are even open, only take them in if they have an appointment. But how do you, it's a real chicken and egg problem. I mean, it absolutely is. We've heard from small business owners, you know, on the actual mom and pop side who are reaching out to their lenders, trying to figure this out in real time. We did tell you yesterday that there's a portal online at SBA.gov where you can search for lenders. But as Kayla was just saying, too, we were told this is a first come 
first served program. So if you don't have a lender, that could be a huge problem for you. Uh, even businesses that I've spoken to that are in touch with their lenders still have major questions about how this is all going to work tomorrow. So I think a lot of that remains to be seen. Of course, we're going to keep everyone informed as we go along. Yeah, real quickly, just make sure I understand. So if you go online, you can get the disaster loans, but those are different from the rest of the small business program. You still got to go through your bank for that? Yes, that's right. You can apply uh, directly with the SBA for those smaller disaster loans of up to $2 million. The $349 billion SBA 7A Paycheck Protection Program loan uh, issuance that we keep talking about for tomorrow, that you have to go through a lender. Yeah. The SBA is a part of that program, but you have to go through the, through bank, the bank in order to get that funding. Yep. Okay, Kate, again, great reporting. Thank you so much, Kate Rogers. Take a quick break coming up. Raising a billion dollars right now is easier if you're investing in healthcare. We'll tell you what VC firm flagship plans to do with those funds that it just raised. We'll speak with the founder who's also chair of Moderna, which of course has the lead vaccine for coronavirus right now. And we've all seen supermarkets with empty shelves as consumers stock up on essentials. We're going to speak to the head of one of the biggest supermarket chains about their supply chain and what customers should expect. A reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says it's the cruelest irony that the U.S. is dependent on China for production of personal protection equipment. We're going to have more on that story ahead in the show. First, let's get to Seema Modi, who has the latest headlines for us at this hour. Seema? Hi, Kelly. That's right. The Democrats are postponing their presidential convention. Presumptive nominee Joe Biden has been saying he did not think a normal convention could be held in July due to the pandemic. It will now take place during the week of August 17th and will remain in Milwaukee. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says the apex of the pandemic could occur in the next 7 to 30 days. He is also reporting another sharp increase in coronavirus deaths. Number of deaths up to 2373, up from 1941. Looking for a trend line. The trend line is still basically up. Total new hospitalizations. Trend line of ICU admissions is still up. It's the latest from Governor Cuomo. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. For now, Kelly, back to you. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. Now, while a lot of VC funding is drying up amid this crisis, one area that's an exception is biotech. Let's bring in Meg Terrell for more right now with a very special guest today. Meg? Hi, Kelly. Well, two different funds, uh, major marquee biotech venture capital firms announcing fundraising of more than a billion dollars each today. They're flagship pioneering and arch ventures. Uh, now, flagship pioneering is saying it's going to use this money to uh, continue to create new companies uh, focused on health and sustainability within its flagship labs unit. Uh, it's going to focus on using AI and machine learning in new ways and also an area it calls health security. Now, Arch Ventures has raised $1.46 billion for two different funds. Um, they are early stage investors in lots of different biotech companies. And they also years ago uh, helped uh, early investment in Illumina, the gene sequencing giant. Now, neither of these companies is saying that these fundraising rounds are focused specifically on COVID-19, but both have been very involved with companies in this fight. Arch Ventures has backed Al Nylum and Veer, a company that was founded specifically focused on viruses. And flagship pioneering founded Moderna, which is in the lead in vaccine development for COVID-19. So joining us now to discuss more is Nubar Afayan, the CEO of Flagship Pioneering and the chairman of Moderna. Nubar, it's great to have you with us. Tell us about this fundraising round. Was it more difficult than usual given the market conditions or did you find people really wanted to put money to work in this area? Well, Meg, it's great to be here with you. Um, the investors that support the kind of work we do are long-term in nature. They are endowments and pension funds and, and quite long-term uh, players. And they've been with us for over two decades now. And so when we sought this additional uh, capital to be able to start new companies and make a new generation of breakthroughs, 
we found a very strong interest in the very nature of life sciences and how they can impact health and agriculture. Well, Moderna, of course, is one of your uh, major companies getting a lot of attention now because it is the first to be in human clinical trials for a potential coronavirus vaccine. Tell us how you see that path forward going uh, when we could see something that can be used uh, sort of more broadly outside of clinical trials. Uh, Meg, as you know, Moderna is a company that's a little over nine years old now. And the journey to this point in, in putting together this completely new uh, approach to medicine, the new drug category based on messenger RNA, uh, has given us a lot of experience that, that poises the company right now to go after the particular crisis that we're dealing with and try to develop a vaccine that can be tested thoroughly uh, in the, the three stages of clinical trials. Um, it's, it's difficult to put a specific date on things just because it's a very dynamic situation. We've entered phase one trials, it's been widely reported. Uh, we'll enter hopefully phase two trials. Uh, we expect that to happen in the spring, perhaps early summer. And success there will hopefully lead us to phase three trials. We are, uh, as was announced earlier this week, with the help of BARDA and others, uh, very much gearing up to be able to um, meet the demand that, that could be generated, particularly in phase three trials. We expect that if the situation continues or worsens, there will be needs for emergency use, uh, in particular with healthcare, frontline healthcare workers. And we are doing everything within our power to be uh, geared up for the battle. And, it, and we expect this to be a long-term battle. We don't believe this is something that will resolve all that quickly. We hope it does in the first wave, but then there's other waves that only vaccines will be able to, to address. So we're quite, quite uh, uh, committed and focused on this. But I'll also say that we expect that many others will We'll work in this area, and we hope that everybody succeeds because the worldwide demand for these types of interventions is far in excess of what any one player can deliver. Absolutely. Well, you guys are moving incredibly quickly, but messenger RNA, as you, you just mentioned, it's a, it's a relatively new technology. We don't have any approved drugs or vaccines based on that technology. I remember you explaining it to me years ago when you guys sort of came up with this approach. Um, but what are the limitations to that? What, what worries you about the development path ahead, what we don't know about this virus and our immune system response to it? What are the potential hurdles to overcome? Well, Meg, um, you know, I've been in the biotech space for 33 years and the industry's been around for more than 40, 45 years. And throughout that time, the thing that hasn't changed is that uh, while we know a lot about the agents that we use to, to try to deliver value, the therapeutic value, vaccine value, we know relatively little about the actual human physiology that we are entering into with our interventions. And therefore, the uncertainties come from exactly how uh, the, the approach we're using or any other approach will actually uh, have an effect in the human body, let alone many different humans that have variations uh, within them. And, and, and that's why the clinical trials are the gold standard that everybody has to go through. It's easy to anecdotally report some, some signs of hope, but we have to be very, very disciplined uh, what you know, many things worry us in the sense that there's unknowns. Uh, but as as it goes, these are kind of known unknowns. We need to kind of focus on the adequate measurements, the the, the controls, the, the appropriate size trials, and we are very fortunate to have the partnership with the NIH, uh, NIAID under Dr. Fauci's leadership, to help guide the way. This is not an isolated battle. Uh, the, we, there are several vaccines that have been tried before um, across infectious diseases, including a lot of work on, on coronaviruses, MERS, SARS. And we're benefiting from all of that, plus the thousands of papers that are being uh, uh, made available today in real time, uh, reporting on what's happening. And we can incorporate that into how we proceed. Absolutely. Well, Nubar, thank you so much for joining us today. We'd love to keep the conversation going as this proceeds, and we really appreciate you being here.
Thank you, Meg. Thank you. To you. All right, Meg, our thanks to you, as always, Meg Terrell. And to hear more from Moderna, the company's CEO, along with executives from Merck, Regeneron, and more, will join CNBC for an interactive virtual event on the fight against coronavirus. This is taking place on May 12th, so mark your calendars. And to learn more and request an invitation, go to cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. Coming up, grounded, the president appears to be weighing whether or not it's time to shut down the skies. Can he and what would it take? We'll get into that. And FEMA is making efforts to coordinate medical supplies from around the world in the wake of the virus. We're going to look at how they're getting supplies here and how they're being distributed. Stay with us. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album, and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back. Let's take a look at the markets right now. About 38 past the hour. We're losing steam into the afternoon here. Remember at the top of the hour, we were up more than 300 points. At the highs, we were up 534. Now we're up just 93. That's a half percent gain for the Dow, a three-tenths of a percent gain for the NASDAQ. The S&P is still up about two-thirds of one percent. We may be seeing this move lower on the back of a Wall Street Journal reporter tweet going back to the oil story today, saying that Saudi officials say President Trump's talk of a 10 million barrel a day reduction on oil is an exaggeration right now, quote unquote. Oil didn't move that much on the news, though. The, the uh, commodity there is still up. Well, it's up about 21 percent. So at the high state, we're up about 24, 25 percent. So it has come off a little bit. Again, that might explain what's happening in the broader market. Uh, homing in on the sectors, consumer discretionary and real estate have turned negative. You can see that there just fractionally. Energy still leading the way up six and a half percent, but it was up 10 percent earlier. Utilities also in the green today by a little more than one percent. And within the Dow, in terms of your movers there, Chevron is still leading. Exxon as well. Caterpillar. Chevron's still up eight percent today. The laggards include Walgreens and once again, Boeing. Boeing is down nearly 6%. It's trading around $123 a share. Well, with social distancing firmly in place throughout the entire month of April now, people are continuing to stop up on food and supplies, and that's putting pressure on grocery chains across the country. Frank Holland joins us now with more and with the CEO of Stop and Shop. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. You know, the Stop and Shop grocery chain is one of many around the country where the shelves, well, they look like this in recent weeks, completely cleared out as Americans stock up on sanitizer, toilet paper, and even staples like meat and bread. These images, they were posted by a Stop and Shop customer on social media, but we've all seen them, and we've all wondered if there is enough food to go around and what is causing stores to run out. We're going to get to that in a minute, but first, we want to share how Stop and Shop is giving back during the coronavirus outbreak. The grocery chain is giving 5,000 free and fresh meals to medical first responders at several hospitals in New York City and in Boston. And we're joined now by the president of Stop and Shop, Gordon Reed. So, Gordon, thank you for joining us, and tell us what led you to make these donations. I think, um, obviously, the medical workers are at the sharp end of uh, this uh, uh, outbreak. They're working incredibly hard, and we heard that they were having difficulty getting fresh uh, food. And therefore, uh, we decided that we would uh, step up and offer between five and 6,000 meals a day. Gordon, you gave us a a list of the top five items that have been the best sellers since this outbreak came out. No surprises here. Toilet paper, sanitizer, things like that. But when we go to the store, sometimes we can't find them. At the same time, we hear there's plenty of supplies. Don't stock up. Where's the weak link in our grocery supply chain? What's going on? Why do we go to the store and and are not able to buy the things that we want to get? I think what happened, I mean, we've been at this now for five weeks. And in the first two to three weeks, there was a lot of panic buying. Um, people were stocking up on, as you say, toilet paper, sanitizer, etc. They were stocking up on canned goods and uh, pastas. And really, the supply sort of outstripped demand drastically. Uh, and we're now in the process of catching up. There's plenty of product in the system. No one's going to go hungry. No one's going to sort of uh, miss out. Uh, but we just have to get back to normal sort of uh, uh, purchasing levels. 
Uh, Gordon, it's Kelly here back at the studio. You guys were early to announce that you'd have this early hour uh, for seniors and other vulnerable people in the population to come shop. I wonder, though, if a lot more still needs to be done to change the grocery experience, because we hear uh, companies like Walmart might be considering one-way aisles. Certainly, I know when I've been to the grocery store, it's a little bit of mayhem. Uh, everyone's trying to stay a little bit further apart, but we all know we're still still not doing it perfectly. And I even wonder if, as a societal help, you guys could do something we've seen in other countries and check people's temperatures uh, maybe coming in and out. I know it sounds a little crazy, but, you know, I don't know, maybe nothing's crazy these days. Well, that's for sure. It's been a roller coaster ride for five uh, weeks. But listen, every day we're sort of looking at um, new ideas and new ways of working. We're working with uh, different states. So in the the one-way system that you talk about, we've implemented that in Connecticut. We're sharing that uh, with uh, the other uh, uh, states, and we're talking with the Mass Massachusetts senator at the moment, uh, or the governor at the moment, um, and trying to sort of influence that these are good ways of working. So we've documented the processes and practices, uh, and we're happy to sort of uh, work with anyone to implement. Gordon, let's talk about online delivery and delivery of groceries. I know since this outbreak started, you said that it spiked by 25%. Do you expect that trend to continue, and will it be sustainable even after this crisis is over? I think it will. I think we're kind of, when we come out the other side of this, which we will, we'll be in a different sort of world. I think people um, have really sort of uh, wanted e-commerce. It's outstripped capacity, I think, in almost any retailer, uh, including Amazon, including Instacart. Um, and people will sort of want this service. You know, I think, uh, as I say, we're coming out the other side in a, a different place. And this will accelerate the uptake of e-commerce. All right, Gordon Reed, the president of Stop and Shop Supermarkets, thank you very much and great work donating those 5,000 meals a day to medical first responders in New York City and Boston. Yeah, and how about just keeping the stores open? That's where my parents shop. Uh, Frank, thanks so much. And Gordon, my thanks as well. That's why I'm like, you know, check temperatures, keep them safe. Uh, Tune in for a CNBC special report, Path Forward, uh, tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can catch the profits, Marcus Limonis, Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary, and Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg on what her company is doing to help. You don't want to miss it. Again, that's tonight live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Now, as the president considers a domestic flight ban, travelers are already staying home. How about this? Yesterday, just 136,000 people went through TSA screening. That's compared with over 2.1 million during the same day last year. So we'll talk about what's behind the administration's thinking and if it will come to pass after the break. Plus, a look at the shares of the airlines today. They're back in the red. United down 5 percent. Similar decline for American. The others uh, just a little bit out outperforming, uh, so to speak. We're back into Welcome back. Let's get to some of the big calls of the day. Morgan Stanley upgrading Bristol-Myers to overweight while cutting its price target by $4 to $64. they are saying that pre-COVID-19, they believed the BMY pipeline was debatable and the valuation was too high. But now the pullback represents an opportunity. They say Bristol-Myers has relatively good earnings visibility during this pandemic, and they see positive pipeline readouts. BMY shares are fractionally higher at 54 and change today. Up next, DR Horton upgraded to a buy at Goldman with a $45 price target. They believe the industry, the home building industry, that is, is positioned to weather a downturn with low supply and healthier capital. They say Deer Horton can outperform in a weaker environment because of its below average leverage and a disciplined approach to costs, receiving a ton of focus on balance sheet these days. Deer Horton down a percent and a half to 32 today. And finally, Guggenheim upgrading Fox to a buy, saying they're best positioned among peers in a weaker but ultimately stable consumer environment. Their national news ratings remain strong. The company has a strong liquidity position as well. And in the live sports world, World, Fox is better positioned because they have late season content. So the hope is we're still maybe going to be up and running by then. Fox A shares down about half a percent to 22 today. Well, the president says he's considering grounding some domestic flights between coronavirus hotspots. I am looking at hotspots. I am looking where flights are going into hotspots. Some of those uh, some of those flights I didn't like from the beginning. But closing up every single flight on every single airline, that's a very, very, very rough decision. But we are thinking about hotspots. So the president says he doesn't want to close the skies altogether. Could that actually happen? Is it allowable, so to speak? Let's bring in Phil LeBeau. And Phil, we've heard Lindsey Graham similarly upset that you could take these flights right. from New York to Florida back. And you're saying, why, why aren't we putting a stop to this? Well, to answer your question about whether or not it's allowable, look, if the president decides he wants to ground all domestic travel, he can do that, although it would be 
problematic. And you talk with people in the industry. And by the way, when I talk with people at the DOT and FAA, they get no indication that that is what the Trump administration is thinking about doing. Now, when you look at the airlines right now, their perspective on this is, look, we're already cutting a lot of our schedule to begin with. They're filling just 5 to 15% of the seats on their flights. And when you look at passenger levels, you talked about this before the break, Kelly. What, 136,000 people? And by the way, that includes pilots and flight attendants and others who were screened by the TSA. That's how many were screened yesterday, down 96% compared to the same day last year. So clearly, people have already decided they're not going to be taking flights. And the airlines, they have parked a number of aircraft. Look at their domestic schedules in terms of how much they've cut so far. We're talking about American, United, and Southwest. American's cut 70% of its domestic schedule. More than half at United Southwest, 40%. So the bottom line is this. When you take a look uh, at another airline, Southwest, uh, we mentioned that they're cutting 40% of their schedule. They're also out today saying that they're going to be taking out another credit line. They want to have the liquidity in place. The airlines believe that it, if you try to shut down all of the system, it's so problematic, Kelly, that most believe it would not be a wise thing to do. More likely is that the Trump administration says to the CDC, issue a strong travel warning, as they have with New York, saying unless it's absolutely necessary, don't fly here. And really, what we're getting down to right now, Kelly, increasingly, it's medical staff. Somebody has to travel for a medical emergency. There's nobody, very few people, almost nobody who is going out and making a trip because they want to to a certain destination. Do governors have any more authority, ability, desire to do something like that, Phil? And I, I also wonder, I mean, a lot of travelers from going back four, six weeks were surprised at how few screenings there were. A lot of times they just, you know, you'd answer a questionnaire or you'd I mean, maybe there was a temperature check, not even, but if there was, you know, something more beefed up uh, in terms of getting through the airport, maybe people right. wouldn't feel like they had to you know, make these blanket so, moves. In answer to your question, typically states and municipalities, they own airports. So theoretically, they could make a decision. This is what's going to happen at this airport. If we decide we want to shut it down, we would make that decision. Having said that, every airport in this country receives federal grant money from the FAA and the DOT. And that grant money comes with the requirement that they have to work in consultation with the DOT. Bottom line is, if, if some mayor decided they wanted to shut down the local airport, it would likely wind up in court and the decision ultimately would be handled on a federal level or whatever the court says. Yeah, yeah, you can imagine it's the last thing anybody will. I mean, are they even having court right now? Are they going to do it by, you know, remotely? Uh, yeah, anyway, there's a lot of reasons why that wouldn't work. But, Phil, we appreciate it. Uh, Phil Lebeau with an explainer of what is happening with a lot of these airports and flights. Well, the president tweeting earlier today that massive amounts of medical supplies, even hospital and medical centers, are being delivered strictly to states and hospitals by the federal government. Now we're getting more details about exactly how they're getting these supplies. Speaking of flights, uh, Elon Moy is here with that. Elon. Well, Kelly, the president was referencing a new White House initiative called Project Airbridge, in which FEMA essentially charters planes to get private medical supplies from overseas to the U.S. faster. Some of the companies involved in this effort include FedEx and UPS, as well as medical manufacturers and distributors like Medline and McKesson. This month, FEMA is coordinating about 20 flights. Uh, this plane arrived in from Shanghai to Columbus, Ohio this morning. The latest information we have from FEMA is that it is entirely filled with gloves, 12.5 million pairs of medical gloves. About half of that will go to counties that FEMA and HHS have designated as high risk, and the other half will go into the private market. Now, states and local officials are concerned that there's not a lot of transparency in the distribution process. They're saying it's not clear exactly where this product will go and how those decisions are being made. So today, the uh, chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, Benny Thompson, he sent a letter to every single state governor trying to track down information about what they received from the federal government so far, so far and how much more they need. Kelly, he said he's asked for the same information from FEMA and from HHS, but he's not received an answer yet. Back over to you. But it does seem, Elon, like there is this global scramble to get uh material and that China was the first to do it and, and find materials wherever they could. Now it's the rest of the world kind of all at once. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to, to locate some of the stuff in such high demand. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that's important to point out is that all of this cargo that you saw, that is separate from what is or is not in the strategic national stockpile. This is all uh, product that is held by private companies. It's not being purchased by, by FEMA. FEMA is just trying to coordinate the delivery of these products. So you see what kind of piecemeal efforts states and locals are having to go through in order to get the supplies they need. Got it. Absolutely. Elon, thanks so much. Are those records behind you? They are. My husband's vinyl collection. Wow. Impressive. You, all right, so you guys have plenty to do uh, with your evenings. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Elon, it's good to see you. We appreciate it. Elon Moy. <laughs> Uh, stocks are losing steam this hour, but they are off the lows of the day after a Wall Street Journal reporter tweeted about the president's discussion this morning of this 10 million barrel cut in oil. The reporter said that claim was exaggerated. You can see the gains evaporating both for markets overall and for the crude price. Uh, let's talk about this for another moment. Craig Callahan is founder and president of Icon Advisors. Uh, Craig, also good to see you in your native environment uh, today. And, and, you know, there's such a, a tight link between the price of oil and, and the markets. But what do you think is the most important kind of macro development these days in terms of, uh, you know, investors worried about whether we've really reached a bottom or not? We do believe a bottom is forming. And it, it seems like all the bad news is priced in. There's no secret that, as you had a guest on earlier, said our economy is like a car that has just hit a tree. We all know that. It's no secret, and we believe it's built in. So it's just a matter of when people can see ahead to the rebound, whether it's next fall or next winter. Would you be going company by company these days, of avoiding kind of sector investing writ large? Well, at Icon, we do take strong sector and industry tilts. And I was just reviewing my holdings this morning to see if there's any that I want to kick out and replace. So it, it, we expect a, a very different market coming out of here different leadership. And I, I'm just trying to find what it is. Well, I haven't heard you say that before, because a lot of times in the past, when we talked about the market, you'd say, look, you got to stick with the winners. And I think for you, a lot of times it was tech and industrials and consumer discretionary, maybe even the financials. Where, where are you looking to these days? What, what do you think might be changing? Um, it appears that there's a, there could favor small cap value, something we haven't seen for a long time. Smaller companies, midsize companies, out of industrials, materials. Uh, that's where I've been focusing most of my search. Why small cap value and why those sectors in particular? Based on historic pricing of value versus growth and small versus large, the, the, it appears a sweet spot right now after this major shakeup are smaller mid cap value type companies. So in other words, you don't know, but you're just following the, the market. Correct. I'm well, going where value pulls me. Right, exactly. All right. Well, and that, that's the most uh, honest answer here. We'll see if you're right about that. You're putting money to work aggressively yet? No, or, or just waiting? Well, we're fully invested. Okay. All right, Craig, it's good to see you. We appreciate it today. Craig Callahan is the founder and president of Icon Advisors. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.